Let me just dive right in because I, I, uh, I want to get to this latter half of this message as quick as we can. I, I don't know why each of you have come to fellowship today at, at, at the deepest level, why you showed up here on this particular day, even if you're you know, as a guest even, but even as a member. I want you to know it's, it's not going to be just another Sunday. When you leave here an hour and a half from now, hour and 15 minutes, um, you are, some of you, I should say, are going to have your world changed forever. And the reason I say this is that some of us are going to hear God. Now, when I say that, I hope you go, well, we all just did. I mean, she just read the passage, 19 to 27. And uh, what James is going to say is, yes, uh, Yes, everyone has heard God speak this morning. We just heard this word. But what James really presses us on is to say um, to hear God's word is way more than just having listened to it. And some of us are going to go beyond listening today, but maybe not all of us. Um, there's always two kinds of hearers, and this is what I mean that we may not all do this. There's those who hear God's word and do it. And then there are those who hear God's word and quite frankly don't do it. The first are changed forever. The second, quite frankly, I've said this many times, especially when we're teaching through the gospels, the second we put our, we, you know, because oftentimes I hear God's word and don't do it, but if we do it, consistently we put ourselves in a very precarious position such that I've said before, and I believe this is true, that to be in a church where the Bible is taught and not respond to it over and over and over again, you put yourself in a place where there could come a day, and Jesus says there will come a day, when you can't hear it anymore as you get callous to it. And I hope, I don't hope that for any of us. Author David Pawson said this. He said, there are two problems with Scripture. One is when you don't understand it. The other is when you do. Now, we are going to understand this text. I, I promise you if, you, if you just listen, if you just hear what we're gonna talk through, even just after the reading, this is not a difficult <clears throat> text to understand. So I'm gonna move through it very quickly. And then we're gonna take the last part of the message and we're gonna do something we don't do often, but we do when we can appropriate I'm gonna have a conversation with a couple who are members at Fellowship. They go to Fellowship Brentwood. You'll get to know them this morning. And, and I've asked them to share because it's a couple who heard God and by their life choices, uh, they're as best they can doing what God invites them to do. And you will find their story not just fascinating, but I think you'll also find it challenging as it presses us in our own world in our own lives. Let's begin where Rob left off. You know, we're teaching through the book of James. If you don't have your Bibles open, go to James chapter one, verses 19 to 27, 19 to 27. Sharon just read it. I'm gonna pick it up and explain it very quickly. Uh, we noticed in James one, verses one through 18, James makes very clear that our response to the trials of life is, is fundamental to our growth in Christ. In 19 to 27, he's just going to say the same thing in a sense, but he's going to say it this way. Our response to God's word is what's important as we respond to the trials of life. And I think we'd all go, yeah, kind of we know that. But he's just going to be very, very explicit and pointed to say it's how you respond to the word that God speaks. That, that's everything in the Christian life. I'm gonna take it in three parts as he does and I'm gonna describe it this way. To hear God is more than just hearing Sharon read or me read the passage. There's three parts to it, at least that he gives us here. There's intentional preparation, intentional preparation. That's 19 to 21. There's humble reception. That's 21b. It's the second part of verse 21. And then finally, there's concrete action. 
concrete action. That's 22 all the way to 27. Let's just dive in, verses 19 to 21. This is under the heading. You know, if you're gonna hear God's word, there's intentional preparation to be done. This you know, better rendered, know this, as some of your translations say. Know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and then this is the second part, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Intentional preparation. When we hear that triad generally, listen, my beloved brethren, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We generally can often put that in the context of interpersonal relationships. And may I say to all of us, that's, a good, that's good advice. Be, when you engage with someone, be, be intent on listening more than speaking and, and, and be slow going to anger. You know, it's like marriage conference material. It's good. That's not the context here. So let's, let's stay in the context of James. And here's the context of James. When you put yourself in a place to hear God, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That, that's the context. You think about these Jewish Christians who've been scattered. Y'all, they meet in homes. They're meeting, you know, a small group of them meet. An apostle or a, or a teacher comes. They have no written New Testament. They have an Old Testament. So when they're talking about the gospel and they're speaking of Jesus's words, someone is speaking it, not open your Bibles to James. They don't have James. They don't have John. They don't have Mark. They don't have Ephesians. So they've got to listen to that person who teaches. And by the way, he's going to say some really strong stuff to teachers later. Right here, his focus is on the listener. And it appears, according to this, we can infer that there were times when the teacher would teach and someone in the room would say, interrupt, so to speak, and go, no, that's not what it means. That's not what I think it means. That's not what they said. And then that person gets angry as the word of God comes to them. And he says, that doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. This is not about righteousness and salvation. This is about when someone hears God's word, gets angry, that doesn't achieve, that, that doesn't, um, express righteousness, the righteousness that we live with God. That's all that he's saying here. I've, I remember when I first started teaching, I was, I was terrified that I would stand up here and start teaching and, so, and someone would just stand up and go, that's not what it says, Lloyd. You don't know what you're, and I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, what if that happened? If that happened today, I, I still don't know what I would do, but I'm not as afraid of it, so, but still don't do it. If I say something, you know, don't do that. But this is about the word of God, about preparing yourself to hear God's word. He goes on to say, um, to remove all filthiness and abundance of wickedness. So, so you, gotta, you, you gotta come and, and, and say, you know, I'm gonna be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, but also I wanna remove all wickedness. What does he mean by that? The, the word picture is to remove soiled clothing. That's what it means when he says, take off the, those things. So it's, if you know that you are living a lifestyle that's, that's evil. You're choosing wrong. You're, you're not choosing what God would choose and you're intentionally doing that. And you wanna come hear the word of God or you put yourself when you hear the word of God. He says, you know, before you hear from God, take off the sin. You know you're doing something wrong, take it off. Take it off, remove it. And the idea for me, and I think it's appropriate, is repentance, to be going one direction, to repent, to turn and go towards God. But in our repentance, take it off. You know, in repentance, we say, I've sinned, I'm wrong. I, that's repentance. And then it's the act of turning to God. So intentional preparation. Everybody with me? How about this question? How many of us, when we're, let's just take the context of coming to church, our preparation is more than Come on, everybody, get dressed. We've got to get in the car. Eat. Make sure you grab something to eat. You know, you know that's what we sound like at my home. I'm not talking about yours. And, um, but how many, of us, how many of us intentionally prepare to hear the word? And at least intentionally prepare in this way that James offers us. It's convicting to me. Well, it goes from intentional preparation to humble reception. So what's that? Look at 21B. He says... In humility, receive the word implanted, 
which is able to save your souls. What is this word implanted? Well, in its context, look at verse 18. Rob covered this last week. It says, in the exercise of his will, God's will, God brought us forth, how? By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So James is saying there, you know, you were, you became a Christian by God's word. And it, that, that's how we come to know God and believe the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, raised again, that he lived the life he couldn't, died the death we deserve, and you go, I believe he did it for me. That, well, that's through the word, the word of truth. That is, by the way, the same word that he says, receive the word implanted. How do you, okay, if we're saved by the word, i.e. the word is, is in us in a sense, and we do know that Jesus is the incarnate word. This is the inscripturated word. We believe the word. Jesus does live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. How do you receive what's already there? My thought immediately went to something I experienced when I was six years old. My dad had gone to Vietnam for a year. We lived in Memphis. It's where his home was. His, his sisters were there. His mom, his dad, you know, my mom's Japanese, so they're not there. They're in Japan. And so we're living in uh, Memphis, and my dad's gone for a year, and I, I remember the day we went to get him. Y'all, I'm six or seven. This is 1966 or 67, okay? I'm at the Memphis airport. These are in the days when, when you went to the airport, you could go walk on a plane. <laughs> Do you remember that? Go talk, hey, go talk to the pilot. Stick your head in there. Let me give you, oh my gosh. And so we were there, and uh, I remember people coming off the planes and, and coming down, you know, the terminals, no security, any of that, and people greeting one another, business people, people on vacation, whatever it may be, greeting one another, warmly welcoming other people walking down. Well, when my dad came down, my aunts, my grandmother, my mom, they just started wailing, like, <laughs> I mean, they're just crying, crying, you know, and I'm sitting there going, I mean, my dad's coming home, man. What, did, some, did I miss something, you know? Because they're just crying. And I, at six, had never experienced happy tears. Some kids in the room haven't probably to this day. But boy, when it hits you, you can't stop it. It's happy tears. And I'm telling you, we welcome my dad. It wasn't just a, it's nice that you're back it was, we treasured, we welcomed, we brought in. Oh, so glad you're home. So to receive the word implanted is simply to welcome, to, to always be welcoming the word that's, that's ours as gift, which I think points to receive it in humility. In the same way, my dad was not guaranteed to come back from Vietnam. <laughs> Thank you, God, he's burning you know, why do we have the word, this word from God? Because we deserved it? Because we earned it? No, because of the gift of grace that God has opened our eyes to say, this is my word to you. And do we welcome it? And there's so much we could say here when welcome it. You know, when you welcome the word, you give the word access to the whole place, don't you? The whole life when you welcome the word. So intentional preparation, humble reception, and then finally, concrete action. Look at, he's gonna get very specific here, but he says, 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. There's the whole theme of James right there, verse 22. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I'll grab 26 and 27 in a moment. This is the theme of James. This is the message of James. To hear the word and to not do the word is useless. That, that, that's his whole point. It's like he gives an illustration. It's like a man looks at himself in a mirror and he forgets what he looks like. In those days, it would be polished metal. Not that you could see everything perfect, but it's, a, it's still a workable illustration for us in that what do we look in a mirror? We look in the mirror, make sure everything's in place before we go outside. He's just saying, if you, if you hear the word and don't do it, it's like you look, you look at your face in a mirror, you got a problem with your face you need to fix, 
But once you stop looking at the mirror, you just go outside and you totally forget what you looked in the mirror for in the first place. Just stay with that. That's, that's generally what he's saying here, okay? That we're forgetful. If you don't do the word, you just forget just like that. Now, he says to, in contrast, if you look intently at the perfect law, and he calls it the law of liberty, and then he says, and abide by it, what would that mean? And do it, look at it and do it, uh, you are blessed. Think about this word, the perfect law, the law of liberty. We don't think of, and he's speaking of, in its narrowest sense, it's, it's the, the word would be the gospel is content, you know, the perfect law. That's Jesus fulfilled the law of God, the whole of scripture. You say the 10 commandments, but the whole, all of scripture, Jesus fulfilled. And when, when, when that perfect law is fulfilled, if we gaze into it, if we look intently at the perfect law fulfilled in Christ, it's the idea of to stoop down. That's the Greek idea, to stoop down. So it's to get down on your hands and knees and to say, honey, to your child, look at me right in the eyes and you get right on their level. It's to peer into. So when we peer into the gospel, the fulfilled law, the perfect law, it sets us free. Well, what do you mean it sets us free? Well, the gospel puts us in relationship with God. It restores our heart wholehearted to be and live who God made us to be and how God made us to live. This idea that the law is, you know, you think the law is binding, it it's restricts. You, you, it's a misunderstanding of the law in Scripture. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want, when you want, where you want. Now, when I was young, that's totally what I thought freedom was, right? We all do. Freedom's, when I'm out of this house, I can do what I want, when I want, how, you know, we feel that, I get that. But may I say to every young person in the room, and I'm not your dad or your mom, you know, let me say to you, um, your mom and dad are right, y'all. That's not freedom. That's not what you want. That's bondage, trust me. Now, I can say that, and you guys aren't gonna know that till you're 25, so just hold on to it and remember it. But freedom is being and doing what you were made to be and do. Silly example, but think of a fish in the ocean, almost in a Disney-esque imagination, the fish looks over and looks through the water and he says, you know, I want to be like a deer. I want to walk on land. So he jumps out of the water and he's on land. What's going to happen to the fish? What's he doing on land? He's not walking yet. What's going to happen to him? Yeah, so, so, so when we seek to be and do what we weren't made to be and do, see, that's death. I, I call that bondage. That's death. You and I, as image bearers of God, were made, we were created to be in relationship with God. And we were made to live our life in such a way that our life and the choices we make and the way we live shows what God is like. That, I'm telling you, is ultimate freedom. And we get that as we peer into the perfect law of freedom, which in fact would be the gospel. Now, let's, get, let's put it on brass tacks, okay? James, you say, hear it, do it, hear it, do it. Give me some, some. Well, he gets very concrete. Look at 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. I.e., if you hear this and you don't watch what you say, useless, useless. Then he goes on. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Three concrete, you can put your hands around these examples. Number one, hold your tongue. Hold your tongue. Number two, help the helpless. Help the helpless. It's that pointed and it's still true today. Widows and orphans are among the most distressed and helpless of, our pe- of people, human beings on the planet, even in our community. And number three, don't let the world stain you. So there's three very practical things. Now, let me explain, don't let the world stain you. What does he mean there? Well, the world in this one, you gotta understand, is the world system, the world's values. All the values of this planet 
that rejects God, all the values, when they say anything about values of life and, and why we're here on the planet, those values, don't let those values stain you, quite frankly, because, because we identify ourselves as a people who say this is what's true and what God says about the world and me as a human being comes from the scripture. Don't let the world's view stain you. And it's, it's a silly illustration again, but it's this idea, think of it as if you were, as if we were in the ocean. And, uh, and you, you were gonna be in the ocean. What, what he's saying here is if you're gonna be in the ocean, which by the way, I think it's interesting that his half-brother, a guy named Jesus, James's half-brother, he said the same things as, as James did, and that is if you're not gonna be stained by the world, he didn't say get out of the world. So distance yourself from the world so the world won't stain you. He didn't say that. He said we're to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. What does that mean? Well, it might mean something along these lines. Let's say you gotta be in the ocean. Well, it says be in the ocean as a, life preserver, okay, not a sponge. So be in the world, because if you're in the world and you're gonna be in the world, be in there as a life preserver. Life preserver is made out of styrofoam, that hard styrofoam stuff, and it floats and water doesn't get in it and it saves lives. Don't be in the world as a sponge. What happens when you throw, what if you threw a giant sponge to a drowning person? What would happen? Well, they both end up on the bottom because a sponge absorbs, you see that? So it's a silly picture, but but it, gets, it helps us see, you know, don't let, don't let it stain you. Don't let the world soak into you. You know, styrofoam, I'm sure, is toxic and it kills people and ultimately will eliminate it by 2030. But it's the idea is don't let the water seep in, right? And, and, and be a, a, a sponge. Okay, this is what I've been looking forward to. Uh, I wanna invite two members of fellowship to join me up here and I'm just gonna ask you to welcome them. I'm gonna introduce them. This is Greg and Allison Balmer. Greg and Allison, come on up here, and y'all welcome them up here to stage. Um, I know Greg and Allison are gonna look out at y'all and go, we don't know any of you, and you're, many of you are gonna look up at Greg and Allison and say, we don't know you, but you know what? We did this three times at Brentwood last week, and only the people that the service they go to knew them, and the other two services, they didn't know them just like you, you know, because you go to a different service and you get to see people. Um, I'm gonna tell how we met. I'm gonna let them unpack their story. I've got a slide I wanna show you first just to kick things off. You know, Greg and a friend, he'll, you'll hear this, they wrote a book as they came out of Harvard Business School called God and Money. Um, and there's a website there. I wanna encourage all of you, and you'll probably remember this more, go to the Generous Giving, Generous Giving website. It's an organization in Chattanooga that did a video on their story, which will unpack more than we can this morning. I met uh, Greg and Allison over two years ago, they had just moved to Nashville. They initiated with me. I don't know them from Adam. We meet at Barnes & Noble, have a cup of coffee, and they just tell me their story. Greg says, he doesn't say anything about the book. You know, I have to pull this out of them. So it's not like he met with me and said, hey, I just wrote a book, and I'm this. So that's not who they are at all. Uh, they just want to meet with one of the pastors of the church they're going to plug into. <laughs> and so I asked them their story. Tell me more. You did What? No, that, are you serious? How did that happen? I just heard this story. I go back to the office and I, I'm with a leadership team. I say, anybody know Greg and Allison Balmer? No one knows them from Adam. And I go, they've got a story that's so in line with our mission and values. I, I, we gotta tell this story to the body. This is three years ago. We never got around to doing that, but I think you'll hear in their story our values and our mission and, and living those out. I wanna say as a qualifier on the front end, and you'll probably hear me say this again, the way what they heard God say and how that's expressed itself in their life will focus around the idea of generosity. Be listening, not just for that application, but just the ways and the principles that have guided their life, not just with money, but with life. That's the idea, okay? And your application is not theirs. We have no idea how you would apply what God says, but it'll be as unique and distinct as you are. So don't hear this as everybody needs to do this, and you'll hear Greg and Allison say that. So with that, um, Allison, I'll let you start. Introduce your family. So they get a picture of who, who, who the bombers are. 
Well, thank you all for having us here this morning. So yes, Greg and Allison Bomber, and these are our kiddos. So Grant is five, Leah is two and a half, and then Marshall just joined the family three months ago via adoption. And yes, so as Lloyd mentioned, we've been in Nashville now for about three and a half years. We lived in Boston and Chicago before that, born and raised in Indiana. Um, Greg works at a healthcare company called Nava Health, and I currently stay home with our kiddos. We've been married about 10 years and, yeah, have been at Fellowship about three, three yeah, years. Yeah, right when you came here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with, you know, the, 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 the book says a lot of what has shaped you guys, Greg. But let me ask you, tell a little bit about how you guys ended up in Boston, what you were doing there, and then what led you into um, Harvard Business School. What kind of life were you all living and how did you view life? Yeah. Good morning. Thanks for having us here this morning. Uh, so... Um, in a moment, we'll get to what God taught us through this process that ultimately led to the book. But to set that up, I would love to tell you a little bit about us leading up to that event in our lives. So Allison and I were both fortunate to grow up in great families where we learned to love the Lord from our parents. We were involved in great churches as children. Uh, but for some reason, there was never any conversation either at home or at church between this connection of our faith and our finances. Those were two just separate areas of our lives as children and into young adulthood. And so I think as a result, we found ourselves living in Boston as a newly married couple, going to church and being plugged in, but also enjoying the high life. We lived in a fancy apartment in downtown Boston. We're dining out at the city's finest restaurants, taking fancy vacations. And if I'm being honest, I sort of use those things and money in general to sort of uh, as a measuring stick to stack mm -hmm. myself up against my peers. Mm -hmm. And it's you know, shameful to confess that to you all today, but it's true. And I think it was really that attitude, um, in fact, in the, the ambition that undergirded that attitude that led to me applying to that graduate school in the first place. And so it was with that attitude that we found ourselves uh, in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as you're going to hear, you, I love this. I love their story in that it shows us God's at work everywhere, people, and He's always at work in His people's lives in unique and distinct ways, and His timing's always perfect. And and that story for you guys was living the high life. I want to get higher. <laughs> I want to go to Harvard, and then some things happened there that you didn't anticipate. That's right. Definitely did not go to graduate school to learn how to give money away. Um, but you know, they call it the West Point of capitalism for a reason, uh, but God had amazing things in store for us. Uh, and so to explain that uh, a bit more, um, when we were there in graduate school, we uh, connected with a men's Bible study. So there were six other men in this group, and then all of us were married. So you know, seven families total, 14 of us. And we began to explore this concept of how would we wisely steward funds were we ever to be blessed with more than we needed. And so it was in that context that I was able to cross-register into a class over at Harvard Divinity School called God and Money, which is then the name of the book. Fantastic course that explored the intersection of faith and finance. So it was really my first time ever digging into that subject. Uh, and uh, John, my co-author and one of my best friends, he was in this men's Bible study with me, he and I began to work on our final term paper for this course, which uh, was written on that subject. How would we wisely steward funds where we blessed with more than we needed? And we read the whole Bible front to back, everything it had to say about money, all 2,350 verses. And we also surveyed 200 very generous families. These are uh, Christians who are Harvard alumni. We had like this Christian listserv. And we were able to uh, survey them on really personal questions like how much do you make and what is your net worth and how much do you give? And so we used a combination of God's word and exploring and just being amazed by these incredibly generous families uh, to write our final term paper. And that is what God used to truly begin to transform our views mm -hmm. uh, on this subject. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I, I do want you to tell this story because it's in the video, but I, I, I like it <laughs> about uh, the first, like the first class and teacher had you do something, and, and so John tells it, but it's pretty good. Yeah, this is a very embarrassing story. So we're, like at, um, so we're at the Divinity School. We're the only two business school students there. Otherwise, you have all these like PhDs of religion who are like way smarter than us. Um, but we come from a business background. And so on the first day of class, the professor has everyone open their wallet and like take out a dollar bill. And it's sort of just meant to be like a object lesson about money. And so you have all of these like, you know, seminary students who I would say are like maybe not well resourced at that time, scrounging around for like a dollar bill or whatever. And I look over at John and he opens his wallet and all he has is hundred dollar bills. 
And so he pulls that out sheepishly and holds it up. I then open up my wallet. All I have is $100 bills. And so I pull mine out. So I would say that was not a great first impression with my classmates. Not, not, okay. a, not a way to make friends and influence people. Yeah, you haven't come off the high life yet, clearly, at that point. That's right. That's right, and the student debt. So he's learning this in school. He's, he's exploring money and how do we handle money? I mean, you weren't expecting that when he went to business school. So how did you keep up with him? How did you stay involved in that and, and that group you know, that formed? Sure. So I would say we always, in general, liked to give to various causes that we were passionate about or that really helped hone our Christian walk along the way. Um, so while he was in business school with John um, writing this book, I was alongside Megan, John's wife, and mm-hmm. we would have meals and sit around and talk through these concepts together, really exploring our finances in more ways than I ever had in the past, um, even as a married couple, we just didn't really talk much about it in the early years of marriage. It was more of, I knew I shouldn't spend more than we, you know, had and, and that, you know, we should save away for, you know, college for future children and all of that. And so, um, it was along these lines that once I knew that the book was getting ready to come out, you know, my sins started to show a little bit and my intentional preparation, Lloyd, was how can I spend all my money before the book comes out? Because <laughs> once this book comes out, you know, it was very clear we were not going to be spending, be spending you know, money the same anymore. Way. So, no. Um, but no, it was, it was really fun to walk alongside him and all of these concepts were, you know, joined in nature as a couple and something that we were excited to kind of explore and see how God would open some doors. Mm-hmm. And... What were like some of the concepts that came out of that? Uh, unpack a few of those that as you, as you guys had that group and what happened with it. Yeah, so kind of the key lessons, if I were to synthesize them down into just a few points. First, we began to recognize that everything we have truly belongs to God. And I think if you asked any Christian that, they would agree, but so few of us actually live that way, and we certainly were not. Mm-hmm. If that's true, though, then everything we have ought to be used for his purposes. And that includes providing for our family, I want to be clear. So you read 1 Timothy 5.8, where Paul exhorts us to provide for our family. He says, in fact, not doing so is worse than an unbeliever. So, you know, God provides for us in order to provide for our family. But we begin to realize that any excess above and beyond that can be used for his purposes. Uh, which then leads to the third and final point. We realized, John and I did, that we were asking the wrong question. We were asking, how much do we need to give? And if I'm being totally honest, this project with the term paper was really an exploration in how little I can give to be in God's good graces, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Is it like 10%, you know, is 12% like extra credit? Um, and so uh, what we realized is we were asking, how much do I need to give when we ought to have been asking, how much do I really need to keep? In recognition of God's provision for our family and uh, acknowledging that we are called to provide for our families, but then also realizing that anything above and beyond that can be poured back into his kingdom. So the way that Allison and I decided to apply that in our lives is through this concept that we call financial finish lines, which are caps on how much we'll spend in one year and save in total. And I want to be clear that we're not saying that this is like a biblical command at all to live that way, but for us, it was a best practice way to live out the lessons that God was teaching us through his word. Mm -hmm. And that group still meets... Uh, Allison, talk a little bit about as a wife being a part of that group and, and, and how they even how you guys even connect today. Yeah, so it's been really fun um, to kind of explore generosity alongside other families. And so we have been able to do several projects together. So like a give project um, where all seven families have pooled together in order to um, support a cause of some nature. And so we just finished over the first three years that we've been out of graduate school, um, translating the Bible into a new language through the seed company. And then we also just kind of voted on our next project, which we'll do over the course of the next few years, which is building a child development center um, through compassion. Mm -hmm. So it's been really neat. Again, no individual family out of all seven of us could have really accomplished any of these larger give projects alone, but coming together um, as families of seven, you know, we have been able to accomplish so much for Mm -hmm. the kingdom in that way. Mm -hmm. Greg and I have also just talked a lot more about what generosity looks like in our own family and marriage. And um, one way is through the giving through our spiritual 
gifts and passions. And so as a couple, we've kind of allocated a certain amount of our giving funds um, to be able to do that as each of us see fit. So Greg has his Excel file, which says, you know, we're going to give this much to church, this much to this charity, whereas I like to be maybe, you could say, a little more spontaneous in my giving. And as I see needs come up through friends or community members, I like to be able to give to that. So my money has been pooled in what Greg likes to call my slush fund, where I can kind of give out of that without having to go to him with every um, chance that kind of pops up. I can just Uh give freely um, Mm -hmm. and know that my passions are also being able to be explored through this idea of generosity. Which which tells you if you do need, have a need and go to them for help, you would go to Allison for the, you know, like I have a need, you would not go to Greg because his has already been allocated out. It's totally true. Yeah, it's their personalities. Uh, but also, do you hear that they've taken the idea of giving and, you know, take Global Christmas for us. Could any of us individually give 700000 to Global Partners? But, you know, together and every, it's not massive gifts, but together we gave 700000 Think about how they've taken that in a concept to say they do it in a group now. Think about your fellowship group that, that you began to think about giving in terms of the group of people you're committed to and committed to, to values. You actually, in that smaller group, could give way more than you could individually. And that group is like, I told Greg when he was telling me about this group, they meet, I mean, I told him, I said, man, dude, that's uncomfortable. That's like spooky accountability. So un- unpack a little bit of that because it's, it's just how God's wired you guys and what God has done in your particular situation with these people. Yeah. So we call this our board of directors for life, affectionately known as the Badoffel. <laughs> and Um, we truly treat it like a corporate board in the sense that it's not intended to replace like local accountability in your local church, but rather we advise and support each other on the big things in life. So are we being a good follower of Christ, a good husband, a good father, good employee, et cetera? And one component of that is accountability and transparency. And I find it interesting that in our community, in the church in general, in most churches, in fact, we're willing to be very open with each other on personal issues. Like take your fellowship group, for example. You probably talk about like difficult marriage issues or you know, sexual sin or whatever, but we never talk about money. It's like the big taboo. It never gets brought up. And despite how much Jesus had to say on the subject. So our bedoffel, uh, we're financially transparent with each other, by which I mean that we share each year our giving goals, our biggest giving success stories, as well as our saving and spending patterns. And I want to be clear that this is not you know, some sort of falsely pious frugality contest to like see who can spend the least. Not at all. It's much more around celebrating what God is doing in each of our lives in the area of generosity. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, happened to you guys, you, you move here. Um, and so now you're going to live out this book, which you have been, but God had, had something in store for you, and I'm sure many lessons in store. I want you to unpack one of those for us. And also the, uh, that, that phrase, because I think it ties to the decision you made, the phrase from the pastor up in, in New York that's shaped you, because I think it's a wonderful phrase for us as well. Sure. So, you know, it's one thing for John and me to sit in our ivory tower and write about what we'll one day do with money that we don't yet have, and it's another thing to actually put it into practice. So uh, God tested us early in this. So we graduate uh, in 2015. We moved to Nashville. I joined a healthcare startup here in town. Six weeks later, we're acquired by a much larger healthcare company. And through that, uh, we receive a large unexpected financial blessing. Uh, I like to say that it represented infinity times our net worth, which was negative at the time (laughs) due to student loans. And I would say because we had already put in place these financial finish lines, we had a framework that actually made it quite easy to allocate these funds across the categories of spending, saving, and giving in a way that we felt was God-honoring and, you know, received counsel from our badoffel on that. Um, so, you know, I would say a year prior, before God transformed us in this way, we would have blown that money in a way that was not God-honoring. But due to, you know, his grace in us over the year, we were able to, you know, steward those funds and mm-hmm. have been stewarding them for the past few years in a way that really excites us. And the phrase that Lloyd mentioned, we heard this great sermon from Pastor John Tyson in New York. Some of you may be familiar with him. He has this wonderful sermon on the topic of generosity, and he calls Christians uh, to live out what he calls provocative lifestyle distinction uh, with respect to how we live. And I think that's such a great phrase for us to think about how we are living in the context of being in the world, but not of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you had to make a provocative lifestyle distinction soon after getting here. That's right, yeah. 
even though we have these financial finish lines in place, I think it's important to recognize that money is still a significant snare to the human heart. I think that's actually one reason why Jesus talked about it so much. And the same is true for us. So we still face significant temptation living here in Williamson County when it comes to these types of topics. So one example of that that we faced, when we first moved here to Nashville, we needed another family car so I could drive to and from work. And I was looking at cool cars, to be honest. Um, Nothing too fancy, of course, but I was certain that an Acura was in the center of God's will for our lives. Um, And so I was researching Acuras. And Allison began to tap me on the shoulder and say, Greg, do we really need to spend that much on a car? And after I got done pouting, I acknowledged, no, we don't need to. And I realized, I remembered that my grandmother, unfortunately, she had failing health at the time, and so she was no longer able to drive, but she had a 2002 Mercury Grand Marquis sitting in her garage. So I drove up to Indiana, picked up the car from Mammal, uh, affectionately called the Granny, had 47,000 miles on it, and that's what I drive now. Uh, and that car has been uh, a great blessing in our life. For, first of all, of course, you know, it's free. And so that freed up additional capital for us to be generous, which, you know, caused great joy for us, which is great. But I think much more important than that, that car is a daily reminder to me that my value is not in my stuff. And as you guys heard a few minutes ago, for me personally, that's a reminder that I need every day. Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. than that, that car has been a fantastic conversation starter with others who say, why do you drive that car? <laughs> and, and you know, it allows us to tell a story about generosity, but guys, so much more than that, it allows us to tell a story of the gospel and what mm-hmm. God has done uh, mm-hmm. in our lives in this yeah. area. Well, you mentioned it earlier, Allison. Tell us a little bit about the year of adoption and why you stepped into that and what, what you've learned and some things God is teaching you through that. Sure. So I was the, you know, teenage gal at church growing up who was always looking for the next baby to hold. So, I mean, I knew that God willing, I would love to have a house full of children one day. And so once Greg and I got married, you know, we started our family and then also started to think a little bit more about adoption. And so to start off, we um, went to see Marty, who was um, leading that ministry over at the Brentwood campus and just had a conversation with him. And he really introduced us to some families in our own congregation who have walked before us um, with adoption. And they were just wonderful support as we started to think about some questions about was this the right thing for our family? How would our other children react? Do we have the finances for this? There were so many anxieties and worries and things um, that were just clouding our mind when really we just knew that there was this whisper in the back of our hearts and minds that God was saying, I have equipped you. You, you can do this. And so at one point we were just like, enough with, you know, not knowing. We'll never know if this is the right time or what the challenges might be, but we are going to step into this and really see what God has in store. Um, And so about a year ago, we really, you know, jumped into the process, did our home study, and over the course of the eight months that we were active in waiting, we saw probably 180 cases. We were rejected 30 times. Um, And so each day I was reaching out to those other ladies who've gone before me, and they were providing so much support of the highs and lows of the whole journey. But um, mm-hmm. back in October, we got matched with our birth mother. And about six weeks later, Marshall arrived. And um, we were able to be there the day he was born and bring him home. And he has been such a wonderful addition to our family. Mm-hmm. The big kids just adore him. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, again, grateful for the support that our church was able to offer as we were questioning you know, what this might look like for our family, but then also saying there might not ever be that right time, but God really had said, you know, you are equipped and you are ready. Mm -hmm. Now, as you hear their story, and I know we've talked a lot about money, but it's, it's, it's not just money. It's, they heard God, they, they began to live that out in this arena. And I hope you're hearing, oh gosh, is, are we saying we all need to adopt? No. Are we saying we all need to do this with our, no, what, what I would say is, if you hear God and you do it, you'll never be the same. And you will be faced as they are and as we all are. What, what does a distinctly provocative lifestyle look like in this world? In this world, to live different from the, the culture that we live in. Not, not to shine the light on us per se, but to shine the light on the truth of the gospel, that this is what God intends for us. And when I met with uh, Greg and Allison about a week and a half ago, Greg made a comment to me. 
just around the idea of that for them living this lifestyle and, and giving and the choices they make, he just said, Lloyd, it's just so satisfying. And, and, I, and immediately I thought, yes, yes, walking with God is the most satisfying life there is. Because it's what we were made for. It's wholehearted life in Christ. And Greg, unpack that, and then I'll wrap us up around just some of the lessons you, you guys have experienced where you would look at us, you'd look at your church family and go, look, we're not doing it perfect, but this is so life-giving, yeah. not life-taking. It's all anchored in this idea of why do we give. And I think what we've learned over the past few years is God doesn't need our money, right? He's sovereign and he'll accomplish his purposes no matter whether I give a little or not. So you ask, why do we give? And I think it's for a few reasons. First, because God gave. You know, God so loved the world that he gave and so many other verses. So we better experience God's character through giving. Second, it's sanctifying. We become more Christ-like by exhibiting God's character, just as is true with all of his other character traits. And then third and finally, for some reason, God has decided to delegate some of the work of his kingdom building to us here on earth. And so generosity is one of several ways that we're able to contribute alongside him in fulfilling and redeeming his kingdom here on earth. And what we have experienced is that when we give, uh, in accord with those reasons, we experience such great joy and satisfaction, in fact, much greater than we would ever receive if we had a fancier car or what have you. I'm about to sneeze. <laughs> I turned my mic up because I'm about to sneeze. And now I'm, I'm not sneezing, so I'll sneeze. I'll, I'll, I'll block it off. Um, we, need to, we need to wrap up. I'm gonna invite you guys in a moment to think about what did what do you hear God saying to you? Some it may be to come to faith, to believe. Some it may be a specific area. I mean, I'm, we're gonna let you apply that, let the spirit apply that in your life. But one last thing I wanna uh, wrap it up with. Um, the, uh, Greg, Greg and Allison, they didn't know I was gonna ask them to do this in this message at Brentwood nor here. And, and before I ever asked them, I want the, yeah, the band to come out and get ready. They had, um, they had made a decision that they communicated to me uh, last week that I want them to share with you. And then I want to make a comment about it, but it's related to this, the idea of giving and how God's wired them and called them to give and, and the opportunity it provides for many of us to take a step of faith. So I'd love you to share that. Yeah, so we've been blessed so much over the past year by the fellowship community in the area of adoption, and then obviously through adopting ourselves. And so we're excited about the idea of equipping other families to experience this same journey. And we know that finances can be a challenge in that uh, many times. So um, we would like to offer a gift of $50,000 uh, to the church to enable other families uh, to get to experience this joy of adoption that we've encountered the last few months. Yeah, and, and I want you to know when they said that to me, we had a great conversation. And by the way, I want you to know I had this conversation with our leadership team and counsel with others because, you know, Greg, it's, they, he didn't say that to us to say, look what we're doing. We're giving $50,000. I asked him to share this because he, he said, you can just tell the church, we can announce it. But I, I, you know, I could be wrong on this, y'all, but I just said, no, I want you to say it because this is what God has called you to do. And um, we, we, we often get so tentative around money that we don't just say it, you know, this is how we live. I want to, you know, et cetera. And um, I was really surprised, quite frankly, last Monday, because I have our fellowship group on Monday nights, and it was after they had shared, and, and we took part of our fellowship time to talk about, hey, what'd you think, what, what did you learn from Greg and Allison, their story, whatever. Well, within my community group, there's people who were, who were like, boy, when he said that number, it just kind of just went, ugh, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you don't do that. You don't tell people what you give. And, and we had a great discussion in my fellowship group around this. And can I say to you all, yes, there is a verse that says, don't let the left hand know what the right. Yes, yes, yes. And do you know there's also a verse that says, let your light so shine that men may see your good works that can may glorify your father. You, you just can't say you don't ever tell what you give. I mean, if that's your wiring, then don't. And quite frankly, that's their wiring. I asked him to share it just to go, you know, this is what they're giving. I mean, does it make you uncomfortable that they said it? Well, let's, let's wrestle with your uncomfortability or mine even in that, not the fact that they shared that. Now, when he shared that, he shared it with Marty. And Marty said, well, Lloyd, let's give $50,000 out of the I Choose You Fund, which many of you have been given, through over the, given to over the years to help people. So it's like Greg said to me, he said, wow, that's great. He didn't ask Marty to do that. But he, he, Greg did say to me, isn't it interesting that generosity breeds generosity? Life change creates life change. 
And, and I want you to know you've given in that I'd choose you fund. Here's a member of our body that they've just said, you know, we've got this and we wanna give it toward it. There is now, I want you to hear this, $100,000 now for anyone at fellowship who, who just has sensed a, a desire to step into that arena of adoption or foster care. And, and I want you to know this, it's not there to be there a year from now. It's there now. Do you, do you believe God's leading you in that direction now? Many, I'm gonna, I guarantee you, most in the room don't. But there are some who do. And so step into that. I don't know how, what you might get from that, but it's there to help you. It's there to help you now. Did you hear God? Act on it. Act on it. And isn't it fun to go, they had a step of faith. Marty took a step of faith. Now the whole church is taking a step of faith. This is the life of faith. And, and I want to say thank you to you also for being so transparent. And I'll tell you what I did with my fellowship group, because they, they were kind of uncomfortable around this, is I said, look, let's watch this video that Generous Giving did. And I, watched, I had our, my group watch the video, which is so good. But what, what, it, what it showed the group is, okay, and this is not everyone, right? But this couple has so, you know, walked a journey with this group that they have, the board of directors, I'm telling you, talking about money for them is like talking about groceries. See, but for most of us, we just don't want people to, well, I don't want you to know what I make. I mean, goodness gracious, you don't talk. Do you know what I'm saying? And it may, it's challenging. I just want you to know it challenges me to say if Jesus talks so much about money, and by the way, Jesus talked about money, and when he did, he talked about some specific money. Like that widow, that's the last she had. And by the way, he had three, he had five, he had 10 talents. It's not like money, I don't want to say much. It's just interesting. Let's take the principles from their life and let's apply it in our life. I want you to stand. We're going to be sung over and we're going to pray. So this time has been set aside for you to pray and ask God, what's my application, God, today? Well, it, 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 it doesn't have to be adoption. It doesn't have to be anything to do with money. It could be anything. What's the step of faith you just sense God calling you to take? And I can exhort you enough, take it. And if you want to pray with someone, we always have people here and here. There's two couples today on each side of me that are here just to pray with you. So you know what? Yes, you've got to work your way out of the, the seats and come up to pray. But I want you to pray. Okay? Now, um, I don't see the two people we were going to have up here. Or There we go. Over here. And then, yes. So I also want Greg and Allison to just stand right here because some of you would want to pray with them. I, I don't know how that might spawn in you, but pray with them if you would. This is a time to say, God, what would you have us? Having heard, what would you have us take a step of faith? Let's, let's pray together, even as we're sung over.